Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast brought to you by the Centre for Policy Studies. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. This week we're talking about moolah, lolly, dough or dosh, the thing that makes the world go round, money. In his recent book, Money in One Lesson, the economic journalist Gavin Jackson tries to answer a seemingly basic but very tricky question. What is money and how does it work? Gavin's book is a grand tour of the monetary world, from pigs in Papua New Guinea to seashells in West Africa, the foundation of the world's first central bank, and the fascinating links between currency and nationhood, all of which made for plenty to talk about on this week's episode. Well, Gavin, thank you very much for being with us on the CapEx podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Your book, Money in One Lesson, came out last year, and its lessons uh, couldn't be more apposite in a time where inflation and monetary policy and everything else is in the news on a daily basis. Um, just to start off with, though, just for our listeners' benefit, um, who are you and what you what do you do aside from writing books about economics? So I'm an, I'm an economics journalist. At the moment, I'm with The Economist, where I'm mostly writing about the British economy. Um, that's maternity cover, though. Normally, I'm just an economics correspondent, and I sort of roam around with a bit of a specialisation in, in environmental economics. So I'm writing a lot about climate change and the energy transition and that kind of thing. It's mostly what I do. But when I wrote this book, I was... Um, I was the economics leader writer for the Financial Times at the time, and I've just moved over to The Economist. Mm -hmm. All right. So has monetary policy always been an area of particular interest for you, or is it kind of... I mean, it pervades basically all of economics, doesn't it? So, Yeah, I think, I think money itself, and this is one thing I really enjoyed reading this book, is kind of just so embedded in everything people do. You know, you can think of money as the story of civilization, about how people communicate and cooperate with each other, and it's all expressed in money. And monetary policy is just, I guess, the latest example of how, how we try and manage that process. Yeah, I mean, when you came to writing the book, it's written, it, it seems to me it's written for the kind of educated layman. I mean, what were you, who were you kind of aiming at? Because it's kind of, kind of an explainer, kind of a history. It's, it's doing a few different things. Yeah, so I got this really nice review from an Indian publication that said it was sort of simple without being simplistic. And that was really my goal. It was kind of, I wanted to you know, someone who was expert in something, but not necessarily this. So you're mm. talking to a very intelligent reader and just communicating a little bit of what I know to them rather than talking down to them, you know? That was the idea, talking with someone uh, rather than down to them. Yeah, what do you think, um, both in your research and just generally in conversations with people, 
What do you think is the most misunderstood aspect of money as we understand it, kind of popularly? The most misunderstood aspect of money. I would say that it is uh, little chunks of metal. Right. That it's yeah. coins and paper. Um, and uh, in reality, money is largely, for most of us, just an, a number on a bank account. You know, a number on some, well, not even a piece of paper anymore, in the cloud, in the ever, um, uh, that's associated with us. That it's a, it's a kind of, it's debt. Money is debt, ultimately. And for most of us, that means uh, debt from the banks to us. And I think most people see it the other way around. Is in, they imagine that in some vault in a bank, there's a little hoard of coins with their kind of name on it. Um, yeah. And it's, not, it's kind of the opposite. I was quite pleased to see that you quoted The Onion um, early on in the book. And if anyone hasn't uh, read The Onion among our listeners, it's basically a satirical US ma- um, magazine, and it included a headline, something like, US economy grinds to a halt as everyone realised money is just a shared illusion. Yeah. Which I thought was rather nice. I mean, you, this is, were you kind of conscious of the fact that other books have been written around this subject? I'm thinking of like debt the first 5,000 years, we had Edward Chancellor on recently who'd written a massive book about interest rates, for example. I mean, where, where did you see your kind of niche coming in? Um, yeah, I think those books are both sort of slightly more polemical than, than mine. Um, they're both kind of advancing a particular idea, whereas I was sort of... My hope was to give sort of my opinion, but the reader enough information to disagree with me, if you like. Yeah. Um, so I think that was kind of what I was aiming for, is someone that was kind of giving you... Um, I'm not. I'm, don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but someone described it as a kind of a no bull. Uh, yeah, no, you're allowed to swear. Yeah, no but, bullshit yeah. buck on money, and that was kind of what right. I wanted to achieve. And what do you think? What was it during your research? Was there anything you came across where you thought, "Wow, I didn't know that," or that kind of changed your own perception of the workings of the financial world? Um. So I think what what really changed my perception of it. Um. I think the biggest thing I learned and probably the thing I was most fascinated by was this, I've got this story in about how inflation works and it's about um, the cowrie currencies of West Africa, which are these yeah, little, yeah. little um, white seashells. Yeah. Um, and I use that to explain the quantity theory of money because there, there are these shells aren't native to West Africa. So they were imported vast distances across the Indian Ocean and around Africa to, to buy slaves mostly. Yeah. Um, and so I've got that story in there. That was something I never knew about. And I think that, um, and that story as well, that, that kind of appears again in the first chapter, looking at what money is, about, um, th- there's these two ideas of money, two theories of it, called metallism and chartalism. Metallism kind of says m- money's a commodity. It's just we've settled on this one commodity, like a seashell in West Africa, or it could have been a lump of copper um, in Britain, you know, 200 years ago, or gold. Um, we've settled on these things, and then we just exchange them. That's metallism. And chartalism says, oh, no, what happens is the government says, you owe taxes, and we're only going to let you pay your taxes in what we call money, and so we're all kind of forced to by the state. And the British government, when it was... Or British government and French government in West Africa tried to impose non-seashell monies um, when they were across their empires, and they completely failed um, because people just wanted to keep using the money they were used to. And I think that that interested me because there's this big de- debate about... Uh, I'm sure you've heard of modern monetary theory. Yeah, so Stephanie Kelton's the big kind of advocate of this idea. Yeah, yeah. And the argument is, you know, sort of taxes don't pay for government spending. 
it's all just money creation. And what taxes do is they delete it, delete the money that's created. And they cite this example of uh, imperial powers imposing money on African countries. And I like, so when I looked at this one, I found that, that actually they didn't do that at all. It really made me just reflect on the way that money is a creature of the state, but it's a sort of a compact between the state and private individuals because we always have an option to say, no, I'll use some other money. <laughs> I'll do something else, you know? And you can see that in countries like Argentina where people opt for the dollar yeah. instead of the peso when money really loses its uh, value or in these contexts where people just didn't view the government as having a legitimacy so they went with the currency that they were familiar with. Yeah, I had this experience myself. I went to Argentina in 2007 where it was basically just pesos but occasionally people would ask you for dollars. I went to Russia in the early noughties only three or four years after the mm. um, they defaulted on the ruble in 98 and everyone was asking you for dollars and the interesting thing as well was they would only accept it if it was perfectly crisp yes. and ready. So people have very kind of almost aesthetic ideas about the kind of money they'll take as well. Which is yeah, I remember, I mean, this isn't in my book, but I, there's one story I read that um, I think somewhere in East Africa, um, people check the numbers, like the serial number, and they will only accept certain serial numbers as being genuine dollars in those countries. So people have all these kind of strange kind of monetary habits yeah. um, that they have. And we think of money as being this very like, calculating and impersonal thing but often it's very quirky and really reflective of of who we are as people no it's like you say in your well i'd say it was your conclusion before you wrote the postscript which is that money is basically just a reflection of the kind of vices and virtues of of human beings in exactly yeah there's this trend to say oh well we put a price on things and then that makes us all all very corrupt you know it's kind of corrupting role of money and you know know the price of everything and the value of nothing and I kind of think, well, actually, no, the price of the prices we put on things do end up reflecting our values. I mean, how kind of uh, timeless do you think these ideas about money are, given that a lot of throughout the book, in fact, in almost every book about economics, people will chart the way that certain ideas come in and out of favour or proven or disproven. And um, it strikes me that is this the same with monetary policy as well? Yeah, absolutely. I say I, I have a yeah, absolutely. I say this at one point is just, you know, economics has proceeded by failing that every time we think we figured things out, we make a big mistake and then we kind of come up with new theories to explain, explain that mistake. And I think, you know, I wrote this during the pandemic and we've seen coming out of that, this huge spike in inflation. And a lot of people thought that was never going to happen again. Um, and that some old theories, you know, monetarism focusing on the quantity of the money supply was just redundant. And I think that there's been a bit of a shift back to say, actually, maybe we need to rethink some of what we thought was settled again. Yeah, I mean, how kind of subjective do you, or contingent, do you think you'll want a government's approach is? For example, might you argue, for example, that in the early 80s in Britain, monetarism was a right approach, but it's not, say, in the 90s or in the noughties, you know? Yeah, I think you always have to adapt things to circumstances. Um, I think... uh, my how contingent is it yeah you always have to think about because with inflation it's sort of about keeping the demand side and the supply side of the economy growing in tandem and you know whatever you think of monetary policy works through that demand side trying to control how much we spend through interest rates and so on but you've always got to think how much to actually know about the demand the supply side mm-hmm. and matching the two together um and so there probably is never sort of 
Well, I do think the inflation targeting approach that we've adopted since uh, the early since yeah early nineties in this country, mid nineties, um, has worked probably the best of any regime we've had compared to sort of trying to peg the exchange rate or try and uh, control the quantity of mo- the money supply. I think we've probably had better outcomes with this, even though they've not been perfect, as we've seen recently, or even after the financial crisis when we seem to sort of be in this bit of a rut for quite a long time. Yeah, I think that's one of the most... A lot of the book is about central banking, mm. um, which I think is one of the least well-understood aspects of economic policy. Do you have any concern that perhaps we've imbued central bankers or kind of ab- abrogated too much power and responsibility to people who are, at the end of the day, technocrats? I mean, it is something you discuss in the book, is what is properly the province of politics and what is the province of central banking. But there is a grey area there, isn't there? Yeah, there is a grey area there. But I'd say... Fundamentally, central banks have one, maybe two tools. They have control over interest rates. And you cannot solve every problem in society through interest rates. You know, there's there's a bit of a push to get them to do more on, on um, what they call greening the financial system, you know, encouraging uh, people to, banks, for example, to move away from more polluting assets to less polluting assets. And, I mean, they can probably do some small things at the margin, but it's really very marginal. And it, all of the big decisions are ultimately going to have to come through politicians for all these things. And they should come through politicians because they are elected. They are chosen by people because they believe they have the right ideas. Central banks are chosen because they have, central bankers, sorry, are chosen because they have technical expertise, yeah. not because they're good at deciding between different uh, outcomes or different trade offs. Do you, some people have suggested that there is a lack of diversity of thought among say, the Monetary Policy Committee. Do you have any truck with that? Um, a lack of diversity of thought. So they, I guess they all tend to come from uh, sort of mainstream economics perspectives. I don't think there's many you know, Marxist economists or Austrian <laughs> economists yeah. um, on the Monetary Policy Committee. But they, they do have a... I mean, there is a range of views, and you can, as you follow them, you, know, you can tell which ones are the doves and which ones are the hawks. But I guess it's... I guess that is a, I would always like to see people with more views having a voice, but I don't know if the Monetary Policy Committee is venue for... <laughs> right, um, just having a punt te- on that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it, 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 I guess I think it should be quite a dry technical job and we should have these debates elsewhere. And then if we decide that a more heterodox approach is called for, politicians make that decision yeah. and then change the composition of the MPC. How much, I mean, do you think there's a sense in which our generation, especially, say people, millennials, for want yeah. of a better word, we've kind of been lulled into a, sen- into a world, brought up in a world where monetary policy was almost there in the background, where we just had really low inflation for so long that the, now the idea of it has come as this kind of, it's almost as much of a psychological as an economic shock. Yeah, the idea of earning anything on savings is <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. a completely new experience. Yeah. Um, yeah, to a degree. I think, though, that other than mortgages, which I know this podcast has talked a lot about problems in the housing market facing millennials. We do, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although we tend to focus on the kind of planning aspect rather than yeah. finance aspect. But it I is very you, important, if you, obviously. If you can't get the money to go for deposit, you probably don't, you're never going to have an experience of the mortgage market, which is probably the most sensitive to monetary policy. You know, yeah. if you're paying things on a credit card or you yeah. can buy now, pay later, 
so much of the interest rate you pay isn't about what the Bank of England does. It's about risk mm. and the risk of, of the borrowing. So I think that we definitely have the experience of what is low interest rates like for our savings. <laughs> you don't earn anything on savings. Um, but I don't think we have it so much in terms of the cost of borrowing just because of that lack of access to housing, which is where most people, you know, a mortgage is the biggest financial contract you'll ever sign for most people. Yeah. If you can't get on the housing ladder, you don't have that experience so much. How important do you think interest rates are in the affordability question? Because this is a very vexed question. You know, what we call slightly disparagingly Mulhernism yeah. um, on this <laughs> podcast, which is basically that, oh, it's nothing to do with supply. It's, it's all because of interest rates, which has never made much intuitive sense to me. But perhaps an economist has a, a different view. Well, I tend, I mean, I'm, yeah, I tend to think, well, this is a debate between what sets the price, supply or demand? Well, it's both, guys. You know? Yeah. <laughs> There's a limited supply of housing. Demand is always going to depend on um, interest rates because most people afford a house by through mortgages. So if you have a limited supply and low interest rates, what's going to happen? Prices go up. Now, ideally, what you'd want is when there's more demand, you get more supply. Mm. That's what we see in other financial markets, you know, is uh, cheap interest rates boosted the price of tech companies' uh, shares. There were more tech companies because they could access that um, capital at a cheaper rate. Mm -hmm. I mean, there weren't inf infinite tech, but, you know, there were people who took advantage of that cost. But if you have a system of boosting demand with constrained supply, then you're going to get higher prices. So I tend to think of it as the people are kind of focusing on what, you know, what economists call one, one blade of the scissors. Yeah, it's both yeah. the blades moving together that, yeah, yeah. that sets the price. Yeah, I think it does get bogged down in a slightly uh, Manichaean view of how that markets actually work yeah, exactly. at times. Um, just to return to the book, I mean, what... Uh, what do you see? The, one of the, one of the sections I found most interesting was about the. It's called the future of money, mm. and it's about crypto. Now I struggle to think of a an area of policy or tech that is more rife, ridden with um, kind of charlatanism and yeah. hype than this. But do you think that crypto, broadly speaking, does have a future in the monetary system? Out with that some of the some of the claims made for it are so grandiose that you forget that maybe it won't replace the dollar, but it might still, you know, Bitcoin might still be a viable currency. I think it will continue to exist because it has such a strong appeal for a certain amount of people that there will always be at least a set of hobbyists right. who, who are using it. You know, even if it becomes not the digital dollar but digital stamp collecting, right? There is still going to be a market for it. And there's enough kind of um, enthusiasts that that will always happen. There's enough people who still want to hoard particular gold coins, you know, the people who like that kind of thing. I doubt that it will have the bigger impact that its advocates say, because I just think that for most people, there is a better product there. And that's the money we're all familiar with. It does everything we want it to do. It's fast. It's stable in value, it's readily accessible, you know, it's sort of, it does everything you want money to do. Yeah. The thing that it doesn't do very well is privacy, is that, you know, your bank can see every transaction you make, and if you have an iPhone, you're doing Apple Pay, well, actually, Apple tend to be quite good on privacy, so I don't know exactly if they can, but let's say... Um, Facebook were talking about this Libra cryptocurrency. Do you remember that? It's the, it's yeah, the yeah. money they were going to do. Facebook doesn't have such a good attitude to privacy. 
And if you were always transacting on Facebook, then they would take every single bit of information you've done, you know, and they could, well, they said they weren't going to do this, but they could have <laughs> tagged it I, out. I, I couldn't think of anywhere I'd less like to have my money than Facebook, exactly. actually, given yeah. the, the amount of fraud there is on it already. <laughs> yeah. So I think that cryptocurrency will still have a big appeal for people who are very, very concerned about digital privacy and keeping their information secure, because I think it's probably the only thing that can do that. Although even then, it's only, you know, there's a lot of stories you hear of people being arrested, um, because it's very easy to track, because uh, this blockchain right. uh, system keeps a, you know... It's got like a key, basically. It's yeah. got a private key, so yeah. it, what they say is it's pseudonymous rather than anonymous. So mm -hmm. if you know someone's key, you can see every transaction they've done, because it's put the public ledger. Um, and so once you figure that out, you can trace back, you know, what they've done. Um, but there are versions that I think are trying to move it even, even more pro-privacy direction. And I think cryptocurrency, you know, so I, I talk about this a little bit in, in that chapter. Um, it was very popular in Nigeria during the end SARS protests. These are protests against police brutality yep. uh, in Nigeria a couple of years ago. And it was very popular then because uh, despite the fact it was banned by the Nigerian government, because people could transact in it privately and securely and keep it out of the view of the authorities. And I think that kind of niche use is probably where cryptocurrency has the most future, other than as a speculative asset, which, you know, it might shoot up again, 10 yeah. grand, and everyone's saying, should I get into it? And, of course, one of the kind of rejoinders to the, let's call the bit the Bitcoin boosters, yeah. is that like, it'd be physically almost impossible for it to become a currency on the scale that some of them imagine, just to the amount of energy you need. Yeah, though there are, I mean, there's things like Litecoin, which is trying to use less energy. Because the, the, the way Bitcoin works, it's called proof of work. So a big theme of the book is that money is trust, ultimately. Yeah. And that we are, you need to trust that that money is going to keep its value. And Bitcoin solves that problem through proof of work. So you do loads of work, and that work is really, well, work meaning you use loads of energy. And that's really This hard. is the mining process, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And then you prove that, and then it's really hard to someone else to overcome that amount of proof you've done and so we can know this transaction is legit there's other ones that are using this proof of stake concept which is more that you put money in and the more money you put anyway there are versions that use less energy so i think there are options down that route um but i think probably if we have if we do end up with widespread digital currencies i expect they're more likely to be central bank digital currencies you know the bitcoin mm. they're talking about them yeah yeah no we'll come on to that but yeah. just coming back to the kind of the broad question of currencies, one thing that's striking that you mention in the book, which is kind of obvious when you think about it, but seems unintuitive, is that in a very, very globalised world where borders are, to some extent, kind of invisible in a lot of places, we still have... Money is still very much a national thing. I mean, why do you think that it's been resistant to... the Aside from the euro, mm. this kind of transnationalification, if you like... Yeah, transnationalization. Like this. Yeah. I think it's just become how we understand a nation is that oh, what is a country? Well, you 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 have a country. A country has a flag, it has a national anthem, and it has a money, and those are the symbols of a country. And so, when you had these wave of independence movements after the end of formal end of imperialism, you had current countries each accepting, each creating their new currency to represent their kind of self determination identity, more than it being some economic calculation that, you know, um, I don't know, uh, Catalonia and um, the Basque country 
and Andalusia all make sense in economic idea. It was just this is Spain. Spain has one money, you know, and then you have it like that. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's basically why. Um, I was just giving a talk up in Scotland about you know what money would Scotland use. Hmm. You know this kind of difficult question of will they use the pound or euro or some new money? And my answer was well probably there'll be some new money because they'll be an independent country. And what does countries do when they become independent? Flag anthem money. Yeah, what's your view on that? Do you think they would? Let's say for example we've hmm. just had a referendum. Scotland's going independent. Would they just peg their create a new currency and peg it to the pound, or would it just be would it float and i think they'd probably have no option but either to use sterling or to peg to sterling in the early years um just because of the amount of cross-border trade the fact that things like pension entitlements are in sterling yeah and if the scottish state is going to honor those pension entitlements it will need sterling revenues to meet that sterling liability yeah and that kind of thing, at least. Uh, and then there may be a process of moving to some some other um, other currency, whether that be euro or an independent Scottish pound or right. Scottish dollar. Um, over time, though, I think I mean, as I say, countries got m- national money to represent self determination, but often they found that they don't actually have that determination. Yeah, that it's forced on them by international markets or. You know, especially a small country without much track record as a borrower, yeah, would would probably struggle to to fund itself in international markets, especially if it's trying to maintain as much spending as Scotland does right now with the smaller share of revenue. Anyway, all that kind of thing, and in that circumstance, you can see that say you peg an independent Scottish money to the pound, it may come under pressure in international markets through speculators, you know, or or like uh, happened here in Black Black Wednesday. Yeah, Black Wednesday. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a George Soros type figure. Exactly. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. Putting pressure on it to to break that peg. So yeah, that's probably what would happen. Is it the choice would possibly be taken away from Scotland? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned before. It sort of feeds into this the idea of a sort of Britcoin mm. uh, or Scotcoin, perhaps in independent Scotland. But how this is something Rishi Sunak, I think, is personally kind of keen on. He's definitely mentioned it. How realistic and kind of how worthwhile is it for a start? What are the use cases for? So in many ways, you know, a central bank digital currency kind of looks like a solution in search of a problem. There isn't much that it can do that we can't already do, you know, with the current British retail banking system. Um, you know, I've got uh, Monzo, which is great. It just, you know, you get someone's phone number and you just send them money instantly. Travels across any time of day, anything like that. There's a sort of marginal benefit of digital currencies in that you don't ever have to worry about a bank run on the central bank. You know, if we all have um, British government branded digital wallets with a Bitcoin in them, then we know that's not going to um, go down in the same way that Northern Rock, you know, went down during the 2008 financial crisis. But how much is that really an issue? You know, that was what the first bank went in 200 years or something like that. So do we need to create a whole new system to guard against that risk that has largely been solved by deposit insurance, which is what they have in the States, you know, the, they're putting money on a bank because the federal government will always make you whole. Um, so that's kind of one thing, but it doesn't seem enough to justify, well, I mean, I mean, possibly one argument for central bank digital currencies is they're probably not that hard to create. You know, mm. we, we, ha- we have the knowledge and technology to them, we need to create them. 
um, other government IT projects are often <laughs> surprisingly expensive. Another kind of rejoinder to the idea of that is obviously one you mention in the book is it comes back to this question of trust. Yeah. I mean, do people want their money essentially being in full view of the government? I mean, it strikes me that, as again, as you say, like you can put in fail safes and things to stop that happening. But that sort of relies on the good faith of the incumbents, if you know what I mean. Yeah, completely. So I mentioned that as well as, you know, the Edward Snowden revelations about the um, NSA in the US were that they were spying on the SWIFT financial network. Um, now, the governments may say, oh, if your Bitcoin is safe, we'll never look at it. But I expect that if they believe there is an overwhelming public safety um, interest in, in GCHQ taking a look at your transactions, they will. And maybe you trust them. Maybe not, you know. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it also might leave you vulnerable to just sort of tech glitches and stuff like that. Like, I can't get to my digital wallet. I have no money. Exactly, Would yeah. Be, uh, well, that, this is all in a world where there's no other money, though. So mm. if it is just an adjunct to the existing financial system, perhaps it's less of a yeah. bothersome. And I, and I think there always will be multiple kinds of money in an economy. We tend to think of a pound as a pound. You know, a pound in my Barclays account, my pound in HSBC account are all the same. But in many ways, they're, they're different, sort of. You know, you can think about them as having specific risks, specific identities, whether they're interoperability and that kind of thing, and the pound in your wallet, and the, you know, uh, these are all kinds of slightly slightly distinct ideas. Mm. Or we could pay each other in dollars if we really lost faith in, in pounds. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that... The... It's good that you mentioned the dollar there, because another theme of this is how money projects political power. I keep seeing... One of the things I do for CapEx is every day I scan basically dozens of different websites um, for kind of the best articles on the web. And one one article I've seen written so many times is like, why the dollar may be on the way out. Mm. I mean, do you have any, uh, do you think there's anything to that? Presumably the, the new kid on the block would be the yuan or renminbi, yeah. whatever you want to call it, the Chinese currency, basically. Yeah, I mean, the, the yuan is much more tightly controlled by um, the Chinese government in that you can't really trade it offshore, I think. Uh, don't quote me on that. Um, <laughs> uh, so the dollar has that advantage always over the yuan. And I think I think the thing is that people, um, that a lot of people don't like the fact that the dollar is so influential and they would like it to be on its way out. But I just don't think it is. And, you know, it's kind of Americans have this slight um, anxiety about their their power that I think the rest of the world looks at them and goes, no, you guys are still quite powerful. <laughs> I feel the same way when I look at the kind of just the size of their economy. It's still mm. so vast compared to everyone else, even with China rising. Yeah, exactly. And and that's a huge advantage for, for the dollar is because such a big economy, if you want someone to lend you dollars, you'll probably be able to find someone who can do it. If you want someone to lend you, I don't know, the Kazakh Tenga. <laughs> I didn't even know what it was called. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to finish off with, well, the, probably the uh, issue in British economics at the moment is uh, is inflation. Um, what's your view on the sort of permanence of it? Because we keep seeing forecasts saying, oh, it's going to come down to 5%. Mm. And also the provenance of it. We mentioned a lot of people think that we're basically... There's a line you say in the book, which is about... Um, money can make you rich, but you're going to have a hell of a hangover mm. the following day. So you can print lots of money, but eventually you'll, you know, you'll suffer. So how much of the inflation we're seeing do you think is due to the long, low interest and QE and all that versus the supply constraints that we all know about and the kind of the unwinding of the pandemic? I think it's very hard to judge. Um, 
I expected you to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as I said, I think, I think as I said earlier, um, inflation is all about keeping supply and demand matched. And in the pandemic, we had just the supply side of the economy. You know, you, you couldn't do a lot of things. You physically couldn't do them. And at the same time, we were trying to keep demand going. And we thought that on the other side, supply would come back much quicker than it did or in a less bumpy way. Um, and therefore, maybe I, I think it's clear that a lot of the measures during the pandemic were misjudged in scale, clearly, if, even if not in direction, even if some degree of monetary loosening was called for in what would seemed like could have been the next Great Depression at the time, felt very stark at the time. But that's they think they clearly misjudged the scale of how much support needed, especially in the US. The amount the the US the Federal Reserve just pumped money into the system, buying for everything it could get its hands on. And then at the same time, the Biden government was doing its stimulus. But I also think it's very hard not to reflect, not for inflation not to reflect the Russian invasion of Ukraine. In fact, we've had this enormous energy shock that has, you know, sent gas prices rocketing. Um, so, yeah, I, so I think there's clearly a case that that supply side shock has also affected it as well as the policy. And I think this is something we will be debating for decades to come in the same way that we still debate what happened in the 1970s or what the impact of monetarism in the 1980s or you know the wisdom of um the exchange rate mechanism in the 90s these things are never settled yeah <laughs> you know money is always a source of arguments it is well if you'd like to be a better informed arguer then i would recommend all of our readers to get a copy of gavin's book which is called money in one lesson um as well as learning a lot about the ins and outs of monetary policy. There are some great pub quiz tidbits there about why we call dollars dollars, uh, African seashells, um, and why it's called a piece of eight as well, which I thought was quite interesting. So do get out there and buy it. Um, Gavin, thank you very much indeed for being with us on the CapEx podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you all at home as ever for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts or just tell your friends by good old-fashioned word of mouth. Do tune in next week for another episode of the CapEx podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.